Genesis 1:24-31. And God said, "Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind." And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. We're going to turn to the, uh, the passage you just heard read a few moments ago. It's uh, Genesis chapter 1. Remember last week, we, uh, if you were here, we, we uh, got into the, uh, the chapter. We looked at the whole nature of, or the question of who God is, and today what we're going to do is turn our attention to thinking about who we are, right? who God is, who we are. And once we've worked that out, you've got, you're set up for the rest of the Bible, essentially, uh, because you've got two key building blocks, I think, in place. There's so much more to explore, of course, but they're the key big ideas. So as we, uh, we dig in, let me, let me pray and we'll uh, get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who is so gracious and merciful, a God who clearly does speak to us, and we pray that you'll do that today, that you'll especially um, speak in our minds and hearts about the nature of our relationship with you and how that shapes our sense of identity and purpose in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to get a picture of my family up there on the screen for you. Actually, it's not my family. It's a group called the Bloodhank Gang. They're an American punk rock uh, hip-hop sort of band, and they recorded a song some time ago. It was called The Bad Touch. The chorus of it goes like this. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do like they do on the Discovery Channel. Now, you, you may not think uh, it's smart to go to a group of young punk rockers uh, to get information on the meaning of life. And the point they're making, they're making it in a very sort of crass way, in that chorus. But you also know along with me that all they're doing is reflecting the views of modern academics, uh, philosophers, on what life is all about. People like Peter Singer, picture of him will come up on the screen. He's a professor of uh, bioethics. Uh, he's a materialist. He's an ethicist. He currently heads up the... Uh, uh, at Princeton University, the, the whole area of uh, bioethical research. And he is quite brilliant. 
But he argues that humans essentially are no different to any other species on the planet. We're no different uh, to the animals, and therefore we shouldn't be treated any differently. Uh, you'll see the quote uh, that he makes. Uh, it'll come up on the screen, I think. He says, To give preference to the life of a being simply because that being is a member of our species would put us in the same position as racists who give preference to those who are members of their race. And you and I both know that humanity is capable of extraordinary acts of evil. Uh, we're an enigma as a race. We're capable of kindness, generosity, self-sacrifice, compassion, care and love. But on the other hand, we can do terrible things to one another. We can be malicious and cruel. Uh, we can be more devastatingly destructive than any other species on the face of the planet. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 3, uh, at that point you get a window into why people are like we are, why the world is like it is, why the human heart is such a problem as people reject God. But today, I don't want to jump to Genesis 3. I actually want to stop and focus on Genesis chapter 1 and ask the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Now, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1, which is all about God. He is the hero. And what we discovered was that he is not only mentioned 35 times in the chapter, but he is the driving force behind every activity that occurs. He exists before all things. He creates everything from nothing. Uh, he is good, generous, gracious. Uh, and the reality is we only get self-understanding as people if we understand the character of God. And what we discover looking at Genesis 1 is that the world is no random accident. It's not here by chance, and nor are we here by chance. God clarifies why he made us, his purpose in doing so. And what you discover when you get to the sixth day here in Genesis chapter 1 is that humanity is at the apex of all that God has created. We are distinct from anything else in creation, and we have a specific sort of role. And you see that because there are all sorts of uh, clues, if you like, that are thrown out that help you understand who we are. For example, the way human creation uh, is the focus of attention. So non-human creation uh, finds its existence in relation to humanity. For example, in verse 30, uh, the plants are mentioned, but they're only mentioned there for their food value for human beings and animals. Or if you go back to verse 14, it talks about the greater and lesser lights, the moon and the sun. And they're there to provide calendar order for our benefit. Or verse 28, animals are classified or defined by their relationship to human beings. Now, they're all the clues that give you a very uh, people-centric view of creation. But also, when you get to the sixth day, if you're reading through this whole chapter, what you notice is that there is a huge change in tempo. Uh, it's like when there's a, a change in key in a song. Now, 
I need to own up at this point, I do not have a musical bone in my body. Mark was just smiling even as I said it because he knows how useless I am at this point. I'm not clever like Duncan or Mark or other people who have musical gifts. But even I know that a key change in a song isn't there by accident. Right? I know that when a key change occurs, it's because a song is moving towards a crescendo or the big idea is being emphasised. When we come here to uh, the sixth day, that's exactly what happens. It slows down for emphasis. There's more words here on the creation of humanity than anything else in the whole chapter. Here on the sixth day, you see a distinction between the animals and humanity. Um, verse 24, uh, we're told, let, God says, let the earth bring forth creatures. But notice in verse 26, God says, let us make man. There's a, there's a more intimate or personal interest. And even the literary structure of the sixth day puts the emphasis on human beings. Um, in verses 24 and 25, we have one bookend to do with the animals. In verses 29 to 30, we have the provision for the animals and humanity in terms of what they eat. But verses 26 to 28 is the centrepiece, and it's all to do with the creation of humanity. And even down to the details of specific words that are used. I don't know if you picked up as we read last week and this week, but there are two words that are used to talk about uh, God creating in this chapter. Uh, the word asar is used to talk about God making certain things. That's used, say, in verse 7 or verse 16 or verse 25. But a different word in Hebrew is used when it talks about the creation of humanity. You get it in verse 1, verse 16. And then when we come to verse 27, God created mankind. He created them. He created them. One is make, and it's translated that way in the chapter, and one is create. Now, you might say, do I really need a Hebrew lesson uh, on a Sunday morning? And you don't. So let me tell you what the, the difference is here. When I got up this morning, uh, I made my bed. Actually, I didn't make my bed, but, uh, but that was the idea. I was meant to make my bed, okay? And, uh, and, but you get the idea that I'm not that invested in making my bed. It's not that big a deal, and most of us are like that. We tend to do it um, just incidentally to our lives. My son-in-law, Richard, he is an artist. Can I say he doesn't make art? Uh, when he paints, he creates a work of art and he is invested into it. What you see here is that when it comes to the making of humanity, God creates. Uh, we are special. We're invested in with intimacy by God. Now, they're all the, the clues, if you like, in this chapter that, that tell you that the creation of human beings is important. But then in verse 27, the special place of humanity is actually made very explicit. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
Male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? See, when I jumped up this morning, I guarantee the first thing that came into your mind was not Paul Harrington so reminds me of God, okay? And by the way, you're laughing. I'm guessing that's true, right? You didn't think that at all, okay? But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Uh, There's been lots of speculation around this uh, to do with physical appearance or intelligence or uh, the ability to reason or personality, communication, um, relational capacity, all sorts of different ideas have been bandied around. What does Genesis 1 actually tell us? Because that's always the key, isn't it, when you read the Bible? Look and see what the Bible actually says to you about the ideas that are going on. And what you discover here is that there is a relational component to our uniqueness, uh, and that's with one another as well as with God. Um, verse 27, we're told God created the male and female. And you might say, ah, oh, yeah, but lots of species are created male and female, aren't they? Except when you go through Genesis chapter 1, there is no other species that's identified as being male and female. It's not that they aren't, but there is a particular point being made here about the nature of relationships. And if we pressed on into chapter 2, we'd see the way in which God has created marriage and the way in which that is structured, quite controversial today. Uh, but nonetheless, that is the reality of creation here. But notice, there's also a special relationship established with God himself. Verse 24. Notice what God says there. God said, let the lamb produce living creatures. But notice how it changes when you get to the creation of human beings. Verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God speaks about animals and plants. But did you notice he speaks to people? He actually said to them. It's a direct personal relationship that God has established right from the foundation of the world that sets us apart as being quite unique. There's also a focus on the instruction to have dominion uh, over the world. That is, there's a hierarchy of responsibility that's established here. We're given an extraordinary privilege and responsibility by God. He's entrusted to us his good creation and we're to exercise stewardship for it, to care uh, for everything he's made. We're, we're partners with him in creation. That's the essential framework, if you like. We could we talk about it much more, but that's the essential framework uh, for what, um, here in Genesis 1, it, uh, it tells us about the nature of human beings. What I want to do for a moment is talk about the implications of what it means to be made in the image of, of God. What, what's, where does the rubber hit the road in relation to understanding who we are in God's plans? Firstly, let me talk about the, the dignity or the value of people, the dignity and value of human beings. Peter Singer, 
his view is that you have the same essential value as your pet dog or cat. Right? You, you have the same value at that base level as a chicken. Um, that's the framework that he has in, in mind as the way in which we work stuff out. But friends, we aren't just the result of a random throw of an evolutionary dice. And uh, human beings, uh, we're not meant to just be utilitarian. Uh, let me explain what I mean. That is, we don't value people because of what they can do or what they can give or what they can produce. We don't value people based on their gifts or their personalities or their beauty or their looks or their success or their intelligence. That's not the framework we have here in the scriptures. Now, Christians have always been at the forefront of social concerns and humanitarian concerns because of the way in which they value people. Uh, Christians were at the forefront of the abolition, abolition of slavery. And we're always people who speak uh, for those who can't speak for themselves at both ends of life. You know, we've had the Royal Commission into ageing and some of the issues that have been exposed around that sort of area. Uh, Christians are not ageist at that point. We value people because they're created in the image of God and we'll always jump in to defend people because of that. And that presumption about humanity is actually woven into the very fabric of the Bible. I want to take you to uh, James chapter 3. I think it'll come up on the screen behind us. Is that right? It's coming up? Great. Um, I want to go to James chapter 3. All sorts of spots in the Bible. Thanks, Mark. Isn't he a good man? James chapter 3. All the way through the Bible, this idea of the value of human beings is uh, at the foundation. It's it's woven through this assumption. Here in James chapter 3, what we have is a letter being written to a church about the way in which they're to treat one another apart from anything else. But I want you to pick up here in verses 9 and 10 of James chapter 3, the way in which... um, the writer speaks to God's people about how they talk to one another and listen to the reason for the way in which they're to speak properly to one another. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness or or image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be. You understand the the in-principle conviction here is because God has made people in his image. You cannot, on the one hand, say, praise you, Lord, curse Mark Peterson. You you can't do that because Mark has been made in the image of God and I need to treat him with the dignity and respect that comes with having been made in the image of God. That affects the way we operate in our relationships. It's, It's built in to the very way we treat each other. Now, when I say that, um, at this point you're probably saying, of course, you know, I mean, um, naturally, that's exactly the way we should should live and we should treat one another. So what I'm going to do for a moment is ask, where are our blind spots on this likely to be? Where are we likely not to take God's word seriously about regard for one another? And it could be different for different ones of us. 
some of us may have a, a tendency to discount people because of their physical or their mental competence and to diminish people because of that. Perhaps we tend to rank people based on um, how successful they've been financially in life and tend to respect people more who have money. Uh, possibly there's a latent racism that you have when it comes to certain nationalities where you, yeah, sure, you, you agree everyone's made in the image of God, but there are some races that are slightly less in the image of God, you know, and you discount because of that, and you know that that shows up. Or maybe it is an age thing. Why, well, clearly in our Australian culture right now, there is a failure to treat our older people with dignity and grace. That's come out in the Royal Commission. All that's doing is exposing the sinfulness of us as a nation and our failure to do that. And maybe you find yourself that way too. Maybe you've got ageing relatives, perhaps ageing relatives who've, who've got Alzheimer's or are declining in that way, and you tend to dismiss them because they're no longer able to engage or relate as they once were. They're extraordinarily valuable because they are made in the image of God. They are precious in his sight. Maybe you're someone who values people based on what they've achieved in their life in terms of their career. Some people think that doctors are more important than unemployed used car salesmen. Can I say that that is a blasphemy in the ears of God? God does not value people based on the particular gifts he's given them and the way they exercise them. He values them because they are created in his image. And we're not to value people the way the world values people. We're to value them the way God does. Can I say, when you, when you dispense with God, then it is the most natural thing in the world to value people on the basis of what they can do for you, what they can contribute. That is just essentially sinful, isn't it? Self-serving at that point. Peter Singer, he's an interesting man, and uh, I don't do justice to his writings. He's a brilliant man, and, and he's got some very astute observations to make about the way in which our world operates. His mother contracted Alzheimer's um, about the turn of the century. His mother had made it very clear to, to her son, Peter, that if she ever got to a stage where she had Alzheimer's, uh, she wanted to be euthanised. And that aligns with Peter Singer's view and that of his sister as well. When their mother was going into uh, that decline with Alzheimer's, uh, Peter Singer and his sister spent hundreds of thousands of dollars preserving her life. He was interviewed after her death and a fairly brave journalist asked him about the inconsistency between his theory and his practice when it came to his mother and how he would justify that. This is what he said. It's different when it's your mother. Now, can I say, I think intuitively uh, he knew the truth at that point. 
God values human beings because he made them in his image. I want to make a comment about how we live in this world, uh, our attitude to creation or the environment. We share the sixth day with animals. Right? That's clear as you read through the end of Genesis uh, chapter 1. And in fact, there's a high overlap between us and our genome with certain animals, chimpanzees or, or gorillas. But here's one key difference that God has designated in terms of his purposes. We are charged with the task of caring for all of creation. Uh, That is a delegated responsibility that we hold alone. Now, humanity has a terrible track record in the way in which we look after and steward the creation. Uh, We tend to manipulate it or strip it to our own advantage or degrade it because of our own self-interest. That's the way we've operated. What's a Christian perspective when it comes to environmental issues? Friends, here's the key thing. We are not the owners of the world. Even your quarter acre block or your 600 metre square metre block or your whatever it is, your farm, you are not the owner of that property. You, You have it as a delegated tender of the property. That's the reality. And we are to look after the creation on behalf of the one who created it. That is in line with his intentions and his purposes. Sometimes Christians have been criticised quite strongly because of what Genesis chapter 1 says. Did you pick up the words that we used when it talks about our responsibilities? Rule, uh, subdue. And some have said, ah, this is a... um, a Christian mandate for taking advantage of creation for our own self-interest. But, of course, you could never think that was the case if you read the Bible in its context. It's God's world. He created it in a beautiful and wonderful way and we're to look after it consistent with his intentions and purposes, not according to our own design but according to his. God is generous, he is wise, he is good. And therefore, we're to superintend the world with that same degree of generosity and goodness and wisdom. Now, there's a lot more we can say about this, but can I just urge us to think about the fact that Christians have the most to contribute towards this environmental debate of anyone? Can we actually know the person who made the world? Obviously, we should be in a position to contribute the most when it comes to these sort of questions and our understanding. Let me finish, though, by talking about what I think is the key take-home thing from this part of the Bible. If you want to understand the key to human flourishing, can I suggest it is to know your maker? I'm going to show you a piece of artwork. Uh, Yeah, there it is. It comes up on the screen. Sue and I, some of you know, we've been spending a fair bit of time in doctor's surgeries over the last 12 months. Sue's been treated for a lymphoma. And normally that means you have a fair bit of time sitting around waiting uh, for doctors to turn up. I love doctors. They're equal in the image of God, and I say nothing bad about them. Wonderful that they've uh, been able to help us in that way. But this is a print in one of um, Sue's specialist surgeries. And you'll be able to see it's a... I have the same artistic talents as I do musical ones. All right? So just... I thought I'd say this, but... uh, I noticed this print and it got me, um, it got me thinking. It's obviously a stylized image of uh, Rundle Moore. 
And you can see there's the eye that sits above uh, the mall's balls. And it's as if the balls themselves are, are tears falling out of that eye. Uh, the image is one of sterility. It's desert-like. And I take it it's the sadness of a culture that is gripped by materialism. You know, we're like pigs at the trough. Uh, smog and desert landscape dominates. Genesis 1, we are made in the image of God, but by the time you get to Genesis 3, we reject God because we actually want to be God ourselves. That's sin, and sin destroys at every level. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationships with one another. It destroys our relationships with the created order. All the good things that God establishes here in chapter 1. And I want to suggest to you that you, you cannot have a right self-image unless you really understand and give yourself to the relationship you have with the one who made you. Otherwise, it cannot possibly work. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is um, the true human who has come to this world, who is God. So he represents what true humanity should look like. But not only that, Jesus actually comes into the world to restore relationship with God. We turn our back on God, and we need someone to correct that problem. That is the key to being human. Just as I finish, I wonder if I can get you to turn to Mark chapter 2 with me, if you've got your Bibles here, you've got your phones. I just want to briefly um, look at the person of Jesus and what he does in restoring image. At the beginning of Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus enters Capernaum and the people hear that he's come home. And so they gather around to hear him teach and to heal. And there are so many people gathered around the place where he's teaching, no one can even get in the door, right? can't even get close. But there are four guys who have a friend who's either paralytic or quadriplegic. They are desperately keen to get their friend to Jesus. Now, why do they want him to see Jesus? It's obvious, isn't it? They want him healed, okay? So they get close, their friend's on a pallet, and they realise they're not going to get anywhere near Jesus. So they climb up on the roof, and these are good friends, right? Destructive friends, but good friends. They dig a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend right down in front of Jesus. Why did they do that? They want him healed. What does Jesus do? Well, this is what he does. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. How do you think this guy, paralysed, felt at that moment? What was he thinking? I reckon he would have been thinking, typical, come to church for a sandwich and they give you a sermon. You know? You know, that sort of... That's not why I came. Is Jesus purposely being cruel? No, of course not. You see, Jesus is doing the key thing so this man can be restored. He's restoring his image, his relationship 
with God. And the key to that is by actually being forgiven. The physical is not irrelevant, don't get me wrong. Jesus actually does heal him in due course. But just the order of his priorities tells you the importance of having that restored image in relation to God. So my friends, uh, nothing but mammals. Our friends, so, so much more. Uh, We've been made in the image of God, made for relationship with God. And Jesus was sent into this world to restore that relationship so that we might know what it means to be forgiven. And that means we have extraordinary purpose as his image bearers, as his representatives in this world. And friends, to be made in the image of God, it is an extraordinarily noble calling. So let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonderful kindness and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we uh, we pray that we'll, we'll keep understanding what it means to be made in your image, uh, that you've made us with intention and purpose, that we reject that. Uh, we turn our backs on you, but we thank you that the, uh, the true man, Jesus, uh, the one who reflects you perfectly, came into this world, not only as an example of what it means to be human, uh, but also to restore that relationship with you. And Father, we pray that you'll keep uh, renewing us in the image of your son, restoring us, Uh, helping us to be people who understand what it means to live in relationship with our maker and to reflect that in all our relationships and as we live in this world. Uh, Father, we thank you. You've given us clarity about who we are. We're not fishing around in the dark for understanding or identity. We pray that you'll help us in the midst of that security of knowing who we are to live for you, the one who's given us life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.